Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Ping.tv. Join the discussion at Ping.tv slash gold. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. My name is Dustin Gold. I hope you all had a wonderful New Year's celebration. Our guest today is Wide Awake Jim. He was on for episodes 120, 121, 122, and then back in episode 80 and 88, we've been uh, dissecting the climate change hustle, central bank digital currency. We're going to get into carbon credits, going through all these documents that Jim has researched and analyzed and highlighted for us, having to do with the Bank for International Settlements, the United Nations, climate committees, International Monetary Fund, all this good stuff, ladies and gentlemen, to help you figure out where we are today with this slave state prison planet, where we're going to be in the future, hopefully start to map out over the next year where this is going in 2030. And this way you can plan your life, figure out how you're going to set up uh, a way to live one foot in and one foot out of this matrix prison planet system. So for New Year's Eve, folks, uh, the wife and I took my mother-in-law, her mom, who's visiting from Poland, out to this little Thai restaurant we love in the center of town called Sumitra. So it was Willie G's first trip to a restaurant. He obviously didn't get to eat the food, folks. He's still only drinking boob juice. Uh, and then we went over to a friend of ours. They had a huge party at their house. Lots of people, lots of kids. We made it about 34 minutes, and then we got out of there. The whole house was full of drunk people. It smelled like pot. It was like going to a fraternity house. Once the pot broke out, we grabbed Willie G and took out, folks. And I don't want to turn him into a stoner at uh, seven weeks old. That's not a, not a great idea, ladies and gentlemen. So I know uh, our guest, Wide Awake Jim, I was just talking to him before uh, we popped on here. And he told me that he was watching the countdown from uh, the BBC. Him and his uh, significant other were getting ready to turn in at about 7.15 p.m. So I'm not there yet, folks. I stayed up till about 9.45. But last year, my wife and I were in Texas in South Padre Island riding horses around. Uh, at sunset and then we were out partying until like three o'clock in the morning those days are over i'm a father now i have to be responsible no more fun no more fun ladies and gentlemen now let's bring on our guest wide awake jim and have a little fun with the bank for international settlements and their umbrella of uh, prison planet matrix system organizations companies and ngos jim how are you doing sir i'm good happy new year to everybody Happy New Year! Yep, so you, we guys, had a, you guys, we had a calm New Year's <laughs> Eve. 
takeout pizza, BBC at seven, and we did not go to bed at seven fifteen, but more like ten. <laughs> oh, ten! All right. Well, you were getting ready for bed at seven fifteen. Yeah. Did you did you guys uh, go out to the, the end up going out to the farmers markets on Saturday? We did. Was anybody uh, out it there? It was light. Some of the some of the farmers weren't there. Obviously, you know they were with their families, but um, otherwise there were a few there. Sure. Yeah, I stopped over at Farmer Carroll's on Saturday morning to grab some uh, eggs, and then I'll check in and see what she's got left in her uh, fruit cellar. So if she, she has like these wine apples that you can store all the way through February. So I grabbed a few yeah. things. It, it was funny. Her gate was closed, but she always told me just hop the fence. So I came in and she came out of the house in her pajamas. I said, what is this? It's New Year's Eve uh, day. You're taking a break. She said, this is the day of the year that I always do my taxes. I like to get it over with because the spring uh, catches up to me quickly. And so I like to get this all done on the last day of the year. I said, wow, you are a responsible citizen. And that's what I love about you, Carol. Write that check See, to the folks, good old IRS. know your farmer. Dustin's allowed to hop the fence and walk up to the house at any time. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I walk. I can hop the fence anytime I want. She's got all these dogs on her property because she breeds Australian shepherd hounds. Uh, mm -hmm. which are great dogs but you got to have a big yard it's kind of mean to lock those things up in your house and so all the dogs know me so i could literally break into her farm and steal squash over the winter if i wanted to i but, was uh, just gonna say that's the equivalent of uh breaking into a grocery store <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly i wait in the checkout lane for 45 minutes just so i could steal the squash from her farm <laughs> no it's great, but no, but you're right. That is the thing about Know Your Farmer, and there's a couple other uh, places like our butcher now. The same thing, like I walk in there, I'm friends with everybody. Uh, one time I needed something, and I had called up. It was I, I was trying to get a hold of organic chicken breasts, and they were running out quickly. It was about a month ago, back there in one of the other supply chain scares. And so I had called them, and the guy goes, oh, yeah, you know, we closed it too, but I'm going to be in there uh, cutting up meats and stuff at like 5 o'clock. I think he was cutting up a deer for somebody because they butcher deer for hunters. And he's like, oh, just mm -hmm. swing by, come in the back door. But see, this is the thing about knowing the butchers and knowing the farmers is you get special treatment. If you give them cash, they love you forever. Yep, cash is still king. It is, definitely. All right. So where are we, Jim? We're at the uh, Bank for International Settlements. Um, this was the document that was the CBDCs and opportunity for the monetary system. And this is where you walked everyone through the use of cash in daily transactions is falling chart. And last show, you blew that out of the water and said, how the hell are they even tracking cash transactions? Because, <laughs> for instance, when I just went to, I'm probably going to get her in trouble now. When I just went to Carol's and bought eggs off her in cash, uh, short of Carol logging that into a POS system, I don't know what she does. Maybe she does have one. Who knows? But uh, if it doesn't get logged in, where does that get reported? Nobody knows about those transactions. Yeah, let's go retitle this document real quick. Scroll back up. They title it CBDCs, colon, an opportunity for the monetary system. I think we should title it CBDCs, an opportunity for the elites to trap everybody else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to trap, track, trace, and limit you from building wealth. 
yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what this is all about. All right, so we're down here. We're just a few pages into this. Um, and I think this is right around where we left off here was underneath those charts, correct? It is, yep. Mm-hmm. So right. basically what the BIS is saying now, I've highlighted this. It says, by now, it is clear that cryptocurrencies are speculative assets rather than money. And that's an important statement. Now, this document came out before the implosion of FTX. <laughs> but, you know, we've somewhat speculated uh, on previous shows that cryptocurrencies were nothing more than an indoctrination tool for, for digital, quote unquote, money, digital currency, things of that nature to prep the, the populace, uh, socially engineer the populace for CBDCs. And uh, here's the BIS telling us that, yeah, the other cryptocurrencies are not money. They're speculative assets. <laughs> and in many cases, are used to facilitate money laundering, ransomware attacks, and other financial crimes. Bitcoin in particular has few redeeming public interest attributes when also considering its wasteful energy footprint. So they're pointing at Bitcoin saying you use way too much energy even though CBDCs use way more than Bitcoin. Well, it's it's funny that you bring that up in there too, because in one of the panel discussions that I reviewed, the head of the Bank of France, uh, Francois something was his name, and he was also chairman or managing director of IMF, I think. He actually mm -hmm. said, and this guy was older, he's been in the game for probably four decades and he was saying right on there in the show that cbdc also will not be considered a uh an investment it'll only be considered a form of payment and he was talking also about cryptos being uh basically the speculative um and assets it was the same type of thing he was talking about but then he, he admitted like cbdc no 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 it's just but but it's funny because when you look at the six forms traditional forms of investment like sometimes the banks actually include cash where like investors won't include cash as an actual mm -hmm. investment um so i don't know what the central bank or the world bank or the bis's stance is on that do you know if they consider the world currency system and fiat like paper cash as an investment or they don't well I, I think they do it's 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 an asset that banks can hold uh just it, but it gives liquidity and it's quote unquote safety you know i mean yeah currencies can be, be manipulated but you know the interesting thing that guy what he just said is is in this bis document which by the way is the annual economic report from 2021 so what people are going to realize when we're done going through all these documents, they're going to be able to point out these phrases and, and policies that you see from different governments and different po political bodies coming out and spewing into the public really were not originated in the political realm. They were originated from these banksters or, and, or the UN. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, do you want me to just keep flipping down through this? Yeah, just keep going. There's not a whole lot I, th I don't think that I've highlighted in this document. So, uh, did you here's a chart. Yep, current forms of digital payments remain expensive. For merchants, cash is still the least expensive payment option. 
This is pretty simple, folks. You know, when you pay in cash at a farmer or some store, the merchant, the owner of the store, does not have a fee associated with your payment. When you use a debit card, there's a one to one and a half percent fee that the owner of the store has to pay on top of the, you know, if you, so if you bought a hundred dollars worth of goods, then that merchant is really only getting 99 to 90 to 98 and a half per, you know, dollars. The other one, one and a half goes to the bank, the debit card bank. When you pay with a credit card, there is a fee of three and a half to 5% going to the big banks. You know, if you use PayPal, there's a cost for PayPal and all these other forms of payment. Cash doesn't have any of those fees. Yeah, I'm looking at this chart here. So it's got this green, uh, which is the merchant service costs. Mm -hmm. Why are those so big on there? You see, uh, we'd have to scroll. Well, so it's looking at a. This is euro, not dollars. Yeah. So this this chart is for a twenty five five dollar transaction, and it reflects in which the merchants were asked to uh, to look at the fixed or variable cost for accepting a credit card payment. Yeah. So you've got the fixed cost, which is the fee, but then you also have variable costs. Things like you have to have the equipment. To, to take that digital that that credit card also so I, I assume that's factored into the cost yeah no i mean it's crazy so you're looking at cat there's three columns cash debit cards and credit cards and then it mm -hmm. has all the different expenses here front office time outsource costs other costs back office labor merchant service costs well on debit cards it is uh merchant service costs is about half of the total costs and when you're looking at credit cards it's about two-thirds of the actual total yeah. cost <laughs> I mean, yeah that's you, not only do you have to have that equipment but but i believe there's also a monthly fee for the equipment whether you do one transaction with a credit card or five thousand yeah yeah definitely there's all types of fees in there yep uh, with cash you just need an old school register uh, or a pocket. Some of them just use their pocket at the farmer's market. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had that happen. I think we talked about it on one of the shows. I was at a deli in uh, in Dallas, Texas. Um, locally owned. Well, I, I thought it was locally owned, but I wasn't sure. And when I went to pay with cash, all I had was 100 So I whipped out 100 and the and the lady at the register it's like, I don't think I have change for that. And the, the other guy behind the counter over, you know, I think he was making a sandwich or something. He walks over, he pulls out his wallet, <laughs> he gives me five twenties and takes my hundred. Yeah. And I go, you must be a local joint. He said, yep, we are. <laughs> Definitely. We will not turn away your money, sir. No. All right. So did you want um, to uh, read this or skip? Yeah, I'll read this. So uh, let me see. It's just talking about the high cost of some digital payments. You know, in many countries, the large share of adults still have no access to digital payment options. Even in advanced economies, some users lack payment cards and smartphones to make digital payments, participate in e-commerce, and receive transfers such as government-to-person payments. Uh, I guess that's welfare. I'm not sure. Um, for instance, in the United States, over 5% of households were unbanked in 2019. 
and 14% of adults did not use a payment card in 2017. In France in 2017, 13% of adults do not own a mobile phone. So this is interesting because this we're going to go through this. I think we already did on one document. In the U.S., the 5% of the households were unbanked. There was a whole study on this. <laughs> and they talk about the one and a half percent that are unbanked, you know, that need because of they, they're not included or it's not inclusive or inequality, all this crap. In reality, 75 percent of that five percent don't want a bank account. That's what oh, the yeah. study showed. Yeah, they, they actually say the fees are too high. I don't trust the bank. And then there was yeah. like a, thir a third one. Like, I don't want anything to do with them. Um and, and then there yeah, are and some cases of people that don't make enough that, money to they, bank. They so. didn't make enough money, right. Yeah. Right. And so, like, I mean, and it's funny when you look at this. So the answer to the problem of people not owning phones uh, or not being able to make digital payments is more technology that involves more digital payments, phones, and then microchips in your hand. So that makes a lot of yeah. sense. <laughs> yeah, the way that the context, the way they put it in this document is that, uh, you know, this is inequality. We have to, you know, we have to capture everybody. Yeah. Corral everybody is what they're talking right. about. <laughs> so this is really interesting. So this is a, a, a section called digital money as a central bank public good. The foundation of the monetary system is trust in the currency. <laughs> the whole banking system as we know it, and forget about CBDC, but the original banking system is all based on trust. That fractional reserve, you know, where they keep 10% of your money and they loan out the rest, it's all based on trust us. When you put $1,000 into the bank, it is you are an unsecured creditor of that bank. It's all about trust us. We'll keep your money safe. It'll be here when you need it. Just trust us. Yeah, and that's what they were pushing on the World Economic Forum panel was the big, uh, the central bankers bring trust and therefore stability to the system. And then the commercial banks bring the innovation and the technology. That was like a running theme that they had of why they needed the partnership between the central mm -hmm. bankers, uh, which they call themselves the public side, and then the private sector yeah. side. They're like, we bring the trust, we bring the stability, and you bring the innovation and the technology. Yeah, it, it, so for, for as we go through all this stuff, it becomes pretty obvious. We have to act like the one Seinfeld episode where George Costanza he stands and decides, you know, everything in his life that never works out. So he's just going to start doing the opposite of what he would normally do. <laughs> Whatever they tell us that, that they, they, that we need to do, we need to do the opposite. Definitely. I mean, so there it says it right here. You have it highlighted. Central banks are accountable public institutions. That's what they kept saying. We're the public side, the commercial banks, yeah. are the private side. Yeah. Hover over my comment next to that, that statement private <laughs> yeah they're so not true. they're not public institutions they're private institutions owned by <laughs> private banks exactly that's the funny part i was laughing during the whole panel discussion because they love to call themselves the public side you know yeah but they're owned by private banks okay. yeah all right so it continues it says compared with wholesale cbdc's a more far-reaching innovation is the introduction of retail cbdc's 
Uh, retail CBDCs modify the conventional two-tier monetary system in that they make central bank digital money available to the general public, just as cash is available to the general public as a direct <laughs> claim on the central bank. They're equivalent. <laughs> they're, they're trying to, again, the context here is, oh, CBDCs is the same as cash. No, it's not. One's controllable. One's programmable. One's expirable. <laughs> one's deletable. The other's <laughs> not. Unbelievable. You know, like Sesame Street, one thing's, one thing's not like the others. Yeah, no, well, well, I'm glad you're going through this because, and I'm glad we did the panel discussions here during the break when you were on uh, episode 88, the break all the way to 121 because, or 120 because um, th now I see where all the central bankers get their talking points from. This, this is all what they recite live on stage. Yeah, yeah. It's it's fascinating. Where so I go back. I always say, who runs the world? It's these guys right here, the BIS banksters. Mm -hmm. So they go on to say the other approach is built on verifying users' identity, uh, account-based access, and would be rooted in digital identity in a digital identity scheme. There's that word again, scheme. It is a scheme, folks. <laughs> I love it when they call themselves out. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm pretty, I wonder when the day is going to come when it says scam and says grift. Like it's like it's rooted in a digital identity grift. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's other documents that constantly use this word scheme. It's really funny. Oh, yeah. Um, the, the second approach is more compatible with the monitoring of illicit activity in a payment system and would not rule out preserving privacy. Personal transaction data could be shielded from commercial parties and even from public authorities by appropriately designing the payment authentication process. These issues are intimately tied to broader policy debates on data governance and privacy, which we return to in a later section. What they're talking about here is they've done all these, these uh, tests and, and uh, uh, going talking about like what they have to do to make digital CBDCs actually work in the real world. Obviously, data protection is something great because huge because they, in their mind they have to sell us that it is totally private it is totally safe otherwise nobody would do it in reality it's it's not private but that's not what they're telling us no no and they, they, when they sit on the stage they talk about that as well that's one of the talking points privacy yep but then you hear um bo lee what's he managing director of the bis uh, or de 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 uh, de okay, deputy managing director, I think of IMF. He straight right. up says after they talk for thirty minutes about privacy, and then he straight up says that they're tracking everything down to the last cup of coffee, where you bought it, what kind of coffee, you know, how hot it was. I mean, literally all this data, and that they're going to package the data and give it to the so-called private sector commercial banks and the regulated non-banks, and that is their payoff, their bribe, to let them use, let the central bankers use their technology. And then this way, they can run real-time credit scores on you and offer you products and loans in real time while you're like standing right in the grocery store, deciding if they're going to extend you credit to buy a head of lettuce. Uh, and so like they talk about all the privacy and then at the same time, they're talking about how they're running a real-time credit score on you and they're giving all this data away on you to the so-called private side of this uh, equation. It, it, like it's they're the such opposite. hypocrites. It's yeah. the opposite. You know what is private? Cash. They tell you it's private. 
Because they tell you, we can't, we don't know what you paid, what you bought, where you spent it, where it went. <laughs> That's private, folks. Yeah. How could we decide that Jim is responsible with his money unless we can track every payment? Well, we can't do that with cash because we don't know what you, Jim, you bought $6 dozen of organic eggs. That's not responsible. You can buy crappy eggs over at this place for $3. Yeah, and you know what else is not on cash? My name, my address, my social security number, my phone number, my email address that's not associated with the $100 bill at all. Exactly. So when you're spending it, it's not adding up to your digital footprint file. <laughs> right. That's this is this is just laying out a diagram of uh wholesale versus retail CBDC. Okay, yeah, we went through that uh, on here. So yeah. this using an application programming interface API for a transaction, and then these charts are in some of the stuff I pulled up as well. They're they're just diagrams showing the flow mm -hmm. of the money and that kind of stuff through these different mm -hmm. systems. But it's all very this easy, folks. That's what they tell you. It's yes. a very easy system. You only have to go through 25,000 pages in documents and white papers to understand it. But it's very simple. <laughs> right. So this is a table that's titled Comparison of Cash, Retailed FPS, Retail CBDC, and as Payment Methods. And I highlighted something in the middle of the table because the 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 it's got several different things in where it compares the three, like safety as a settlement asset, finality of the retail payment. And then it's got one, a category called identification required for access. So for retail FPS, it just says yes. For retail CBDC, and FPS stands for financial payment system. Um, for retail CBDC, it says design choice, token or account based. For cash, it says none except for high value payments in many jurisdictions because sometimes you like cash transactions are limited in certain countries like you can't you can't buy, pay cash for a car you know because you can't spend more than like 20 grand or something yeah the and next I mean, and category similar, is, similar stuff here like if you try to transact in more than it used to be ten thousand. mike moore says it's really three thousand. that that's at least getting reported directly over to the fbi and irs Sure, but that's that's at a bank. I'm not sure if you go buy like to buy a car and you ACH or wire the car the uh, the dealer money. The dealer's not reporting that. I don't, I, I don't know. know. I don't know I, I, about I, I, the big dealers, but, but but I know even in real estate because I've had a conversation with Maria Albanese about this because she had to start dealing with it and the the sort of the end so years. For cash buyers of homes, they have to report it. Well, like you can't buy a home with a bag of cash. That's illegal, she said. They changed no, that. No, you got to wire the money. Yeah, yeah. yeah they changed that money. after nine eleven. And then let's say, let's just say, Jim, that you can, you have been totally clean. You paid taxes on every dollar you made, right? But every mm -hmm. year at the end of the year, for whatever reason, you take out I don't know twenty five thousand dollars in cash and you put it in your safe at home. Then ten years later, you're gonna go. You want to buy a piece of land. In uh, I don't know Tennessee, you find ten acres. Somebody's selling it for two fifty. You go, I want that. And you go take all the cash out of your safe. Go to put it in the bank so you could do the wire. Maria said that's actually, I believe it's illegal. 
uh and all that money would then have to be sourced you'd have to go back and show records for it make it it's like, not illegal every- but yeah you'd have to source it now look look paying cash is nice but if if i'm gonna buy a new truck i'll wire the money to me that's still paying cash yeah it's coming from my bank account but i'll just wire the money not actually you know take a suitcase full of hundreds down to the dealership no but it'd be anyways cool there's another could. category there's, no, no scroll back up there's another category on that table uh, anonymity and confident confidentiality among users so for financial payment systems there's no anonymity in other words no privacy but confidentiality is protected by system design, bank secrecy, and data protection laws. Yeah, how many times have all that has all that crap been hacked? Mm-hmm. Uh, for the CBDC, it's again design choice, token or account based. But again, it, your your data is out there. For cash, under that c- category of anonymity and confidentiality for users, it's high. <laughs> they can't have it's that. It's private, folks. folks. Yeah. Yeah, it's higher than uh, Hunter Biden, you know? Yep. At a more basic level, CBDCs could provide a tangible link between the general public and the central bank in the same way that cash does as a salient marker of the trust in sound money itself. (laughs) This might Uh, be seen as part of the social contract. Jesus. Uh, yeah. Between the central between bank and the public. The, between the central bank and the public, there's a social contract. I didn't know that. Did you know that? I didn't sign uh, a contract. I never signed a contract, but that's just me. I thought you did, and the people in the audience signed one. Yeah. Indeed, there are good arguments against a one-tier system fully operated by the central bank, i.e. a direct CBDC. What they're referring to there is that the central banks will interact directly with the public versus versus having a two-tier system like we have now with commercial banks in between. And I've got a comment on that statement. I, don't, I can't remember the comment if you just hover over the yellow box. Oh, Scroll back up. Oh, yes. Loss of sovereignty. Right. So when the central banks get CBDC in place legally, and John Titus has has talked about this, so has, um, uh, oh, what's his name? It's skipping my mind. The guy that did the Princess of the End, um, Richard Werner. Mm -hmm. That is a loss of of sovereignty. The bankers will be in complete control. Of, of whatever country. Yeah, and they, they talk about that on the panel discussions as well. Uh, whether or not... See, I was telling you, Jim, the and, and the audience has seen this, I had brought up the tension between Francois, the head of the Bank of France, and then it was um, Axel, who was representing the so-called private banks. He was the chairman of Credit Suisse, and you could see the tension between the two because that's what they were talking about. And you could see in this guy Axel's demeanor and the tone of his voice that the so-called private sector guys, the commercial banks, they see the writing on the wall. 
that uh, they're eventually going to be pushed out of the equation. So if they allow for a two-tier or multi-tier system right now, where the private sector guys control the technically the bank accounts and they control the infrastructure that this new CBDC blockchain will sit on top of, they know the end goal of the central banks is to be the only middleman between me and Jim. So if I wire Jim 100 bucks, or I'm going to buy something from him for $100, the central bank wants to be the clearinghouse in the middle and the only one in the middle. And the commercial bank guys can see that coming. They're not stupid. They obviously know that is the dream of the central banks. Yeah, and so this is why I, I, what I think I don't remember what show I said it on, but I can't wrap my head around how they're going to be successful in getting this across the finish line. You've got, let's break it down. You've got countries currently that don't trust each other. And there, this the banksters or BIS model, all these countries have to be agreeable and trust each other to to do all this, to implement this. They don't do it, they don't trust each other. Now, how do you get everybody to trust each other to go along? How do you get people like uh, you know, if you look at these major political uh leaders in m- many of these countries, like Putin or Xi in in uh in China, you think they want to give up control? You think they want to give up power? No way. And then you break it down to the company level, right? They talked about ESG. You know, one of the documents we went through the other day is uh, is no. We mentioned that this is this is adding cost to companies to to create these departments um, for to track and monitor their ESG and all this other crap. It's highly expensive, right, for companies. Look at the fact that Vanguard left the net net zero asset managers alliance. Well, why did Vanguard do that? They managed $7 trillion. Maybe Vanguard sat around and go, you know, we could lose 50% of our our customers, our our business from this crap. Uh, No thanks, we're out. How do you no. get all these big companies, everybody to agree? I, I, I can't I can't wrap my head around it. And I think it goes back to these scientists and engineers, right? It's interesting they want to socially engineer everybody, but in general, as a broad uh, you know, a broad statement, scientists and engineers are not the most socially adept people in general, right? As right, a group, exactly. as a whole, not a, right. not indiv- everybody individual, but as a group as a whole, but yet they want to socially engineer everybody the way they think it should be done. How's it going to work? How no, are they going to be successful with that? Well, I agree with you there. And th- we've talked about this uh, on the show together, too, with the fact that human nature you know, always ends up coming into play. Now, you would say to yourself, to take that guy, Axel, I was talking about, the chairman of uh, Credit Suisse, right? Now, Mm -hmm. you say, okay, well, if we need that guy's approval to do whatever it is we want to do, we just offer him some golden parachute out of the BI. We'll give him a check for $100 million to just go away. Well, there's still thousands upon thousands of people that work under Credit Suisse. There's management level, executives, people, all these people that like... When you look at human nature, they aren't just necessarily interested in money. If they're already worth $100 million, 
But they, they also like power and control. So what you're telling them is, I'll give you more money to get out of the way and go, you know, live in your house and play video games all day because we're taking over the whole system and we don't need you anymore. Like you, you have right. to muscle so many people out of the way. One of the big issues too. It's like you say, they create the whole climate hustle grift, create a whole fake industry to be able to uh, end up reaching whatever their end goals are. But now you have millions of people that rely on that grift, on that industry, many of which believe it's real. They believe they're saving the planet. They believe they're going to put solar panels everywhere. And then all of a sudden, you got to tell them, sorry, the game's up. You're gone out of the way. Move over. How, How do you, you have to engineer those people out of the way and get them to literally really accept their ultimate demise it's like how do you figure all this out it seems like a lot of work well that's why it takes them a generation or two to get what they want across you know in implemented think Mm. about when did self-checkout lines first start in in grocery stores and retail stores it was at least oh god 30 years ago maybe yeah, I think, well, I think they started ago. when I was in high school. I think they started, and then, and then so they weren't like they weren't popular for many years. They didn't bring them back right. and try to start marketing them until COVID land. That was like the beginning of right. the resurgence of them. Right. Same with cell phone and smartphones. Right. When cell phones first came out, all right, there was there was nothing smart about it. You had no internet access. It was just uh, you know cellular technology and carry a phone around wherever with the towers. Well, not wherever, because a lot of spaces, you didn't have any cell service at the time <laughs> and texting. And really, that's all it was. Right. And then when smartphones came out in what the early 2000s, like 2005, six or whatever, it took a while for them to get going. But now we're 15, 16, 17 years in. And we just read that 13 percent of France people don't have a smartphone. Mm-hmm. You know, I think last 2021. Yeah, and here and here's the other thing too. I, I, I was just going to take it away from thinking about it from bank and finance for a minute. So let's say the goal in ten years from now in the uh, retail food industry, because I've been reading a lot of trades and I, I could see what direction they're going. They want to end up turning everything into uh, this Amazon model, where you order all your food online like Instacart and it gets delivered to your door. Well, in the United States, there's still three privately owned grocery stores left one of them is Publix which is you know down uh, out of Florida they have about 1200 stores now I believe that's employee owned the employees own all the stock uh, it's still owned by the family that started it you have Wegmans which is here they're out of Rochester New York they have about 110 stores but they're these big you know beautiful stores they have like kind of a Costco model there's one within every uh, one hour radius well when you talk to those families they aren't necessarily interested in selling their companies to Jeff Bezos, you know, or to the big bankers. They want to be part of closing down and just turning their brand uh, into something that's just a warehouse. So those are the kind of people they have to either engineer them out, bribe them out, muscle them out, or threaten them. I mean, that's a lot of work no. to, to, no, get they them don't. To, to get Publix no, they to don't. shut down. Think about Publix, okay, because I'm in the South. Pub- we have Publix. Where does Publix get their food from? Well, no, I was going to say Big you could cut, distributors. You, yeah, you could cut off their food supply, but I mean that's at the point where you're literally well, not cut it off, threatening. Not about cut it. it off. Not cut it off. Think about all right. So people can go look this up. They are building these hydroponic vertical farm. Massive. They look like warehouses. They're mm-hmm. massive facilities all over the country. Okay, 
and they're going to create produce with no sunlight. It's all LED lighting and no soil. It's just water, probably municipal water. <laughs> and it's called hydroponics. You know, Christian Farmer, Christian uh, over at Ice Age Farmer talked about this uh, a year, year and a half ago. Mm. And all kinds of, uh, you can go to his website and watch the, uh, or his sub stack or, uh, and watch the videos on this. They're building these facilities all over the place. So they don't have to get Publix on board. You just change the, you get the distributor, right? So the distributor is now going to get their food, not from a farmer, but from this hydroponic Amazon style facility, creating lettuce and tomatoes and all kinds of vegetables mm. and other produce. That's how you get Publix and Wegmans on board. Yeah, they'll have some stuff from local farmers, but what percentage of the floor space is it? Oh, def definitely. But I'm saying to push them into the model of eventually we're going to just buy you out, you're going to go away, and we're going to turn this into like Amazon a warehouse, you know, where no customers are They don't are have to. Out. Publix Publix has the delivery system like Instacart now. And, you know, I see half the Publix employees, it, the few times I go in there, to get the things that I can't get at the farmer's market, they're constantly, these all these employees are running around shopping for people that ordered online or ordered through Instacart, and they're putting, they got a whole front section of the store where the, those people can either come in and get their food they ordered directly online, or the Instacart people can come in and get it. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not convinced that they have to take over or put them out of business. They can just change where they get the food supply from. No, no, that's true. But that's what I'm saying. When you look at the grocery stuff and then compare it to what's got to happen in the uh, commercial banking world, it's similar. They have to get all of these commercial banks and regulated non-banks on board with the new system of CBDC. They have to accept it in some way or they have to engineer them into it. But like you said, if they're going to engineer them into it, that might take them a whole nother 20 years or 25 years. Well, and, uh, and more than likely, that's what's going to happen. You know, first of all, in a lot of countries, CBDCs is not legal tender so they got to get laws passed how do you get laws passed it's a whole lot easier if you roll out cbdc as a form of payment not necessarily mm -hmm. legal tender like form of payment like visa or mastercard or american express is let that play out for 10 15 20 years before you change the law to say it's legal tender because that way you now you've increased the footprint, if you will, for CBDC use in whatever country. You know, if they roll it out as, a, as optional and CBDC gets adopted by the public and becomes 15, 20 percent of the accepted re the retail transaction payment system, but maybe bigger than Visa or MasterCard or, 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 or American Express or Discover or whatever credit card. Then you can, the politicians can go and easily pass the law. Right now, yeah, because at be that difficult. time, because at that point, it's adopted and everybody's used to it. Nobody puts right. up a fight. Yeah, right. And and like you Re just said, right. with these, remember, they don't want to fight. They want no, to do no, this no. without no. one vote and without one uh, one shot. So yep. they want to make it as easy as possible. That's why they slow play this stuff over generations. Yeah, and like you just said, with Visa and MasterCard, both of which are on board with that company consensus, working with the central banks to turn their systems into backbones for CBDC because it gets the central bankers direct access into 80 million merchants worldwide. And I ran the numbers the other day uh, in the United States. 
I don't know what the hell it was. 88% of people, I think, are walking around with a Visa, MasterCard, or an Amex. Um, it was something like 70% have all three. So it's like they they want to, in the beginning, for you to be able to walk in the store and tap your chip or insert your chip or swipe your card for Visa. And instead of it just saying, are you using it? Let's say it's connected to a bank account as debit or credit. You'll be able to hit debit, credit, or CBDC. That's like their first step in this. That's why they're partnered with Visa and MasterCard right now. Yeah, so so the definition of legal tender, and again, John Titus went through this in his most recent video, and he explains it very well. Actually pulls up the law for folks that want to go look it up. His uh, YouTube channel's best evidence, one word, no space between best and evidence. And he talked about, you know, what is legal tender? Legal tender is a currency that is is by law settles debts okay so by law visa does not settle a debt it's a form of payment but it has to be agreeable to the other party in the transaction if if the local barbershop does not accept visa and i i go in and rack up you know 50 haircuts and i want to pay with a visa and the barbershop doesn't accept visa i it's they can do that because Visa is currently under law, not legal tender. So, Jim, but, is, this, is this where this idea Visa, comes from? This, well, hang on a second. So, but Visa has been around for so long, is so ingrained in the populace now. If Congress passed a law that says Visa is also now legal tender, and it gets signed by the whatever president of the United States, you know, nobody's going to bitch and, and complain and moan about that. Right. And is is that where the idea comes from that you hear people say, hey, that coffee shop down the street for me isn't accepting cash anymore. That's illegal. Is that where that's coming from? Because if because it's legal tender, does that mean everyone is supposed supposedly has to accept it? I'm not a lawyer, but that that makes total sense to me. Yeah, no, I mean, that's where I think it stems from. You know, when people say that in general, I'm not talk, talking about lawyers. So what you're saying is if all of a sudden they made Visa or MasterCard legal tender, then technically every store, every retailer would have to accept Visa because it's legal tender now. I would think so. But again, the, the, the legal tender definition is that it, it settles debts. Well, if I walk into a coffee shop and they refuse to serve me, what debt do I have? to pay that's true all right so that might be how people get around it because there are places yeah. you, you said you've seen a couple of these weird hipster shops that won't uh won't accept cash yeah i went into one in, in, in atlanta when we moved uh my significant other's daughter down there recently a few months ago and uh i ordered and they're like i whipped out you know cash and, oh we don't accept cash and i said <laughs> why and they just they didn't even know why they, they they literally didn't know why and it's interesting because a perspective that i had never thought about so i mentioned this to um my my girlfriend's daughter i mentioned what happened and uh she goes that makes me so angry um and ideology doesn't really matter but she you know she's left left for sure um but she, she made a good point. This is coming from a 22-year-old, okay? She goes, mm. what if a homeless person went into that coffee shop and wanted to buy coffee? They don't have a credit card or a debit that's, card. 
That's because they're under bank, Jim, and we need to get them CBDC and a microchip in the hand immediately. Right. So this <laughs> this uh, woke coffee shop not accepting cash, and they're all about inclusivity and equality, are excluding the homeless. Definitely. That's a good point. I mean, that's the, see, it, that's what it, it's a great point. Sense. I had never thought about it, and this came from a 22-year-old. Yeah, that's what happens when you use common sense. Yeah, so I thought about you know that's a good point. Maybe because uh, if you this is in a bougie area of Atlanta, but you know three streets over is not bougie; it's the opposite of bougie. And I'm driving through there, I'm like, hey, I wonder if I should round up you know five or ten of these guys, put them in the back of my truck, and drive over to this coffee shop and let them walk in and order coffee, and give them twenty great. bucks to go do so and see what see what these uh, these woke people would have done. Exactly. You round, up, them out. you round up five of them. You put a GoPro on each of their heads and you give them $20 a piece and you say, go in there and have a field day, guys. Have yeah. have a coffee and a, a bagel on me. <laughs> see <laughs> what these coexist people, see how these coexist people act or, or react and see if they walk the talk. Yeah, that would be, that would be great. That's actually, that would be a great video to shoot. <laughs> All right, so well, we're I'm at, sure there's uh, a coffee shop near you that's not accepting cash. Somebody can. Oh no, no, <laughs> I've seen, I've seen them. I mean, since COVID land, I probably, I don't know about now. They may have changed policies. Maybe they were just afraid of the germs. But between Nashville and here, I probably had seen a handful, like maybe four or five. But they were that. They were like little privately owned coffee shop, yeah. bagel shop type places. Yeah. Uh, owned by a couple of trust fund hipsters who are basically what they were signs up everywhere you know equality <laughs> yeah. logo and but yeah <laughs> we get sustainable coffee from the colombian farmers this is uh green coffee really you've been out there you ever see the slaves that are working on that plantation <laughs> right they just like no the idea. the children mining cobalt <laughs> <laughs> in the it's Congo. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right so we got uh, we're almost done with this document. This is just a graphic. We don't really need to go through it. People can pull the document up later. All right. We're taking a look at this. Yeah. So if central banks were to take on too great a share of bank liabilities, in other words, if if the central banks go in, like muscle out the commercial banks they might find themselves taking over bank assets too for these reasons cbdc's are best designed as part of a two-tier system where the central bank and the private sector each play their respective role a logical step now think about this who owns the central bank jp well, morgan in this country it's jp oh, morgan country, yeah. Citigroup. it's the well it is it's this way in most countries as far as we know, the ones that we can find, like you can't find any data in Russia or China, but in the Western world, it's mostly the private banks. So do you really think the federal reserve, even if they did muscle out and do a one tier system, it's still the same guys. It's still the same banks. Right. They, now they would get rid of the smaller banks, obviously, but it would be a way for J.P. Morgan and Citigroup and the 26 com you know, commercial banks in the U.S. that own the Federal Reserve to take over and rule the whole entire banking system. So we'll see how it plays out. But they're talking like they don't want to do it so far. 
Yeah, and I'm telling, I, I told you <clears throat> the video with the Bank of France guy. That's what he was saying to the Credit Suisse guy. He was like, we yeah. will let you run the bank accounts. We will let you run all the private. We don't want anything to do with that. We'd stop doing that in 2004. And trust me, we don't want to go back to that. We will let you deal with the peasants one-on-one. -on -one. That's what he was telling them. Well, and John Titus has talked about this too. Like, you know, the Federal Reserve to, to build and manage individual cbdc bank accounts would be a complete nightmare whereas jp morgan already knows how to do it for their customers but it's a little different than how citigroup does it for their customers um so it's probably just more of an operational issue at this point now maybe 30 years from now it's not but currently it kind of is yeah, well, that, that's why I said that's why they kept telling them, you guys, you, the private sector, bring the innovation and the technology and the infrastructure and we'll provide the stability and the trust in the actual currency in the, mm -hmm. in the digital token. Yeah. I think we're pretty much done with this document. You're done with this? Yep. All right, folks, we're flipping through one more just to make sure. Did you miss anything down here? It's important. Oh, here we go. All right. Yeah, we'll read this part. Identification and privacy. I think we've kind of already talked about it. To ensure access and integrity in today's financial system, bank and non-bank PSPs verify identity. When customers open an account, PSPs often demand physical documents like a passport or a, a driver's license. For cash, small transactions are anonymous and largely unregulated for practical reasons, but identity checks apply to high-value payments. Despite these measures, identity fraud is a key concern in the digital economy. All right, I'm going to pause here and stop reading. Hmm. It is not a fraud is not a key concern in the analog economy, <laughs> just the digital economy. I'll keep reading. These considerations suggest that a token-based CBDC, which comes from full anonymity, could facilitate illegal activity is therefore unlikely to serve the public interest. <laughs> Identification at some level is hence central to the design of CBDCs. Again, my name is not written on the $100 bill that I use at the farmer's market. Yeah. Uh, this calls for a CBDC that is account-based and ultimately tied to a digital identity. A digital identity scheme, there's that word again, which which could combine information from a variety of sources to circumvent the need for paper-based documentation will thus play an important role in such an account-based design by drawing on information from national registries and from other public and private sources, private meaning like Amazon or Google, who says they don't sell your data, but they do, such as education certificates, tax and benefit records. Oh, that's the IRS and Palantir. There you go, Peter Thiel. Thank you. <laughs> property registries a digital id serves to establish individual identities online it opens up access to a range of digital services for example when opening a transaction account or online shopping and protects against fraud and identity theft folks we just talked about i how i saw that they are expecting cybercrime to go up like seven five seven hundred percent in the next five years or so how does this digital ID protect against fraud and identity theft if yeah. they're expecting cybercrime to go up 500% in the next five years?
Exactly. Then on top of it, you don't actually even need what they're calling a digital ID. So think about just pretend you're doing this on your smartphone. You're not going in a store and opening up your government Uncle Sam digital wallet or your digital wallet supplied to you by Chase, Wells Fargo, TD Bank, or Citi, um, and then having to open up a digital ID. It's all combined into one system, the ultimate thing. The CBDC, when you have it, is literally stamped with your number, your social security number, your digital ID number, whatever it may be, that CBDC, while it's in your hand in real time, is assigned to you. I mean, in your hand, like in your wallet, digital wallet, it's assigned to you. So it's all, all the digital identity is one thing. This is what the whole stuff we covered here called digital twins or uh, mind twins. That's what they're doing. They're building a digital footprint of you. It's a real time digital uh clone of you like that lives in the digital world all this stuff is assigned under that digital twin so when you open up your wallet only you can spend that token that's in your wallet right but the digital id is not the push for that is not going to come from the bankers it's going to come from the world health organization because who would sign up for a digital id for banking purposes everybody it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that if that's hacked your whole digital world, your, your whole identification is stolen, right? But if we have to have a vaccine passport, health, global health, public health, digital, you know, ID, maybe we can get more people to accept that versus a bank version of digital ID. So watch the World Health Organization, which is trying to ratify the treaty that all these countries are signed on to, to say next um, during the next pandemic, the World Health Organization is going to dictate the rules for the lockdowns, not the individual countries. Again, loss of sovereignty. Definitely. And, and, and you're right about that because you're going to get the digital ID push from that end. And this all ties into Bill Gates ID 2020. They did a lot of the mm-hmm. research in this. The other thing is you're going to have certain states. You know, generally in the beginning, left-leaning states that'll help push this because they're starting to turn drivers. Hey, look, even Florida and Texas are doing it. All right, turning uh, IDs yep. and driver's license into digital IDs. So you're going to see it come from different angles to uh, be adopted by certain groups of people. I don't know. Maybe they'll do the Trump digital ID, and a bunch of people will go, "Well, if Trump says it, it's to protect us." There'll be two IDs: one for the slave system and one for Trump, because uh, Trump loves us. You know, I mean, they'll hit us from different angles, but even Peter Thiel, some of his companies were involved with digital ID stuff at the beginning of COVID. So you're going to see it come from uh, from all these different angles. But I agree with you. Like, nobody's going to sign up for the central bank digital ID, but they will yeah. do it. I mean, and if you look at the company Consensus that's working with the central banks and Visa and everybody else, they also are doing a lot of blockchain technology that sits on top of the Ethereum protocol for other reasons. They're working with Dubai. Dubai is like a huge smart city. The UAE is trying to be the first smart country, and they're working on digital ID programs for them that operates on the blockchain, and they go through the top six reasons uh, for blockchain for government, and it talks about smart cities, digital IDs, they want real-time vaccine data on you, they want to store your 
educational records so you can't pretend you went to college for something that you didn't they also want real-time tax records on you they want real-time loan repayments for college education and of course they talk about cbdc so i mean that's that company consensus that's really instrumental because they're working with bis they're working with the world bank uh amazon has contracts out the butt with the uh, central banks right now they're housing all sorts of data but of course i broke down amazon i showed they control essentially 50 percent of the whole entire internet right now on top of it they have billion dollar contracts with the cia and nsa and then with intelligence agencies in all these other countries that are supposedly our enemies <laughs> so it's like the whole system is already centralized it's one giant centralized system it's crazy yeah. pause here so you mentioned dubai wants to be the first real smart city who which country is probably their closest competitor for that for that first first smart city what do you have at Singapore here? It's well, it's not Singapore. This is a country. Dubai is a country mm. too. But you mentioned it's like one giant smart city. It's Ukraine. Oh yeah, well Ukraine, we actually covered that during the yeah. during the midst of all this, right? They're supposedly bombed to smithereens. Their head, their heads of government are putting out videos showing that the whole thing is a prison planet matrix system, and then they announce they're doing other uh, test pilots on CBDC right now. I'm like, this was like a couple weeks ago. I'm like, wait a second. Yeah. I, I thought these guys are in the middle of a war. The leader of their country hasn't had a chance to change out of his G.I. Joe pajamas or shave in, what, a year now? But they have time to launch a CBDC pilot and uh, put out promotional videos that their whole country looks like Terminator. <laughs> like, what Did are you the kidding? promotional videos have their current president dancing around shirtless in leather pants? <laughs> It's crazy. And then the guy comes to the United States literally in his uh, first grade G.I. Joe pajamas. I mean, it's, it's yeah. outrageous. Anyways, we continue. In Singapore, the SingPass platform provides a digital identity linked to an individual's biometrics, facial recognition, and fingerprints. Any identification framework requires a high standard of cybersecurity. <laughs> They're sitting here telling us that they have to make sure that there's no no hacking, no identity theft. But yet, in another study, they told us a whole bunch of hacking and identity theft is coming right then, towards you. So and here's the best part, Jim. If you look into any of these major government contracted, quote unquote, cybersecurity firms, you know, like ones that Rudy Giuliani sits on the board of. They are riddled with NSA and CIA guys, right? Those same guys, if you go research them, like let's take former head of the NSA, Keith Alexander. He sits on the board of the Artificial Intelligence Foundation that's working on building mind twins and digital twins, sitting on the same board with the guy that is working on this technology that I showed the other day that could be like the AI, personal Jesus, antichrist. So you find all these so-called cybersecurity contract companies are all the same NSA and CIA guys that are sitting on the board, all the people building the digital twinning and the artificial intelligence. It's crazy. But they love you and they're here to protect you. Right. So I'm going to read part of this is not highlighted. It says, however, design features matter for their overall impact in the cross-border context of whether CBDCs will serve the broader public interest. Remember, every country is working on their own CBDC 
how do you get them all to work together, right? With different laws, different jurisdictions, different societal uh, norms, and, and different currencies. So the, the BIS goes on to say one potential concern is that the use of CBDCs across borders might exacerbate the risk of currency substitution, whereby a foreign digital currency displaces the domestic currency to the de detriment of financial stability and monetary sovereignty. They always tell you what they're really going to do. You just have to be able to read between the lines and, or, or pick up on the little phrases. They flat out say in that sentence that CBDCs are going to totally take over monetary sovereignty. You will lose monetary sovereignty. That's what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Definitely. You see, you see this uh, doublespeak in all of their documents. Um, yep. This is what my friend Dan Golvach, who's been studying theology and occultism and stuff for over 40 years, he was on episode 115, and he was talking about when you when you look at this from the spiritual side, like this dark stuff they're into, they call this revelation of method. And they basically tell you exactly what they're going to do because it clears their conscience and their karma. So when they do it, in their mind is, hey, hey we, we told warned you, you. So. We gave you a chance to revolt. You guys chose not to. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's go here. This is talking about CBDCs combined with digital IDs. So the cross-border use of account-based CBDCs will require international cooperation. Again, every country, all the countries have to get along. They all have to trust each other. One challenge relates to the use of digital ID information outside the originating country. As a supranational digital ID would require unprecedented concentration of an individual's information, <laughs> it would be politically fraught. However, a supranational digital ID scheme would not be necessary for cross-border cooperation on CBDCs. <laughs> oh, this is brilliant. Of particular promise are multi-CBDCs, or M-CBDC. It's a small M, folks, just like M-R-N-A. <laughs> Arrangements that join up CBDCs to inter interoperate across borders. Right. That's, that's all similar to the small M-Bridge, you know, the M-Bridge project yeah. out of the BIS Innovation Hub, which is the cross-border testing going on. Yeah, uh, you'll see in other documents for retail CBDC, they'll have a small R. For wholesale, they'll have a small W. We're done with this document. Okay, we are done. So now this document here, let's just see. This is Green Bonds, the uh, Reserve Management Perspective. Central banks are playing an increasingly active role in promoting the move towards a sustainable global economy. I like the word promoting. <laughs> it's an interesting term to, to put in that sentence, um, i.e. marketing. Yeah, exactly. A, a, a pertinent example is the recently established Network for Greening the Financial System, NGFS, which brings together around 40 central banks, supervisory agencies, and international financial institutions to develop a coordinated response to climate-related risk in the global financial system because the earth warming by half a degree <laughs> is not good for banks. 
<laughs> Still can't figure that out. I would love to know how it is. I, th- uh, I think it's it's network for greening the financial system. That means they're going to get more money. <laughs> network for greening our pockets. <laughs> yep. Who who runs and owns the financial system? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Central banks can use various tools to support the greening of the financial system. <laughs> These range from disclosure requirements and the provision of data to the integration of climate-related risk into financial stability assessments. Again, banks now, small banks have to hire a team of of staff to just track this stuff and follow the regulations. What does that do to small banks or any small business? Into any any industry, the small businesses get regulated out of business. Mm Mm-hmm. Or they have to sell to a bigger fish because they can't afford the regulations. Yeah, that's always the plan. That's why, you know, when you see, when you see over the years the lobbyists working for the big companies writing these complicated laws, and you would say, why would the big companies want to have to deal with all these new regulations and laws? No, it's to cement them into power because now the little guy has to sell or close his doors because he can't comply. Yep. yep. Central banks can use various tools. Uh, Oh, we just read that sentence. So in addition, central banks can help mobilize funds to contribute to the large-scale public sector investment required to reach the goals of the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. In this context, a key tool is the portfolios of assets that central banks have been entrusted to manage in the context of their country's exchange rate uh, policies, foreign exchange reserves. Okay. Green bonds, safety and returns support their incorporation into reserve portfolios, but their accessibility and liquidity currently pose some constraints. So what they're doing here is they want these green bonds, which somebody like the IMF or even, you know, just a commercial bank can issue. They want to be able to get that bond as an asset that central banks can hold. What does that do? It grows the size of the bonds, right? The market. They're creating the market. Mm. We can skip that. This is uh, fascinating. Skip this. Uh, Let's see. Anecdotal evidence suggests that the resulting excess levels of reserves have led to reserve managers to place more emphasis on achieving adequate returns. For example, by diversifying the asset and currency composition of their portfolios. So again, these green bonds—they're trying to create the market. So then, people like or asset managers like BlackRock will go and invest a ton of money in them. So how does this? So how does this actually work? The green bonds. Green bond. Yeah, we're going to get into that in other documents in detail. Yeah. Uh. The rest of this document so far is just talking about, uh, you know, introducing the sustainability. Um, So explicit integration can be achieved by central banks that are able to specify sustainability as one of the policy purposes for holding reserves. Uh, In practice, that would imply changing the central bank statutes. You know, right now, the Federal Reserve statute is to what? Keep a stable currency um and like low inflation or whatever which mm. they failed miserably at both but that's what they say um it would imply the central bank statutes or other key government governance documents 
which may face legal or political constraints. <laughs> to the best of our knowledge, no central bank has yet taken this step, even though some already aim for sustainability as part of their current general mandate. <laughs> and then uh, <clears throat> this is just a chart here, sustainability and central bank policy objectives. Yeah. Did you want to the review this? The bank includes sustainability considerations in pursuit of its own policy objectives. Do you think there is scope to include? It's okay. We can skip this. All right. And then we've got uh, this, or should we go down? As regards of a choice of tools for this sustainability, central bank's preference seems to be green bond investments, followed by the use of criteria encompassing social and governance considerations ESG, in addition to environmental ones. Green bonds, here we go, features and trends. Green bonds are fixed income securities whose proceeds are used to finance new or existing eligible green projects, i.e. projects to combat pollution, climate change, or the depletion of biodiversity and natural resources. They are either asset-backed or asset-linked, and issuers must declare the types of green projects eligible to receive funds at issuance. Green bonds are the biggest part of the broader universe of socially responsible investments, which include bonds and equities, equities mean the stocks, from issuers identified by so-called environmental, social, and governance ESG standards. All right, so there's lots of questions here. Who decides what's an eligible green project? The banks. Mm -hmm. Or in other words, the BIS or the UN. You know, if you have a forest and you want to put a bond on that forest, if the UN or the BIS doesn't classify your forest as a green project, you can't do it. So you got to follow their rules, folks. Yeah, so again, it's economic terrorism here, hijacking all this stuff. Yep. So is, yep. can, you break, can you break that down um, just like in layman's terms, how it actually, how it works? So where, where is the green bond created? It's created at a bank or a central bank. So at or a, the IMF or the okay, World so, Bank. You so know, we talked about blue it? bonds, which we've, we've got that documents in, in, in this trove of documents, the blue bond thing for for Belize, where okay. they walk through how it works. The reason it's called blue bonds because it's on the in the oceans. Green bonds are on land. Okay. It's the same features, though. They that You have to set aside so much uh, for conservation or you, you have to use this money to go build a solar farm or a wind farm or you have to, uh, you know, eliminate some carbon, whatever, um, using the green bond money. Where, where does the, where is the money coming from? It says it's, um, either asset backed or asset linked issuers must declare the types of green. Pro okay. Oh, Scroll green down. Bond. So here's different. Well, no, back to the chart. You, you scrolled too far. So here's the chart of where the, the green bonds are growing issuance by country. And scroll up just a little bit, just above this, this table or this chart, bar chart. 
Issuance has grown right underneath the highlight. It says issuance has grown rapidly in recent years, rising from less than 50 billion in 2014 to close to 230 billion in 2018. A key catalyst for market development was the 2014 introduction by the IP or, or International Capital Markets Association of the Green Bond Principles. Oh they God. govern the use of proceeds, the proceeds for project evaluation and selection, the management of proceeds, and reporting. Bonds meet the uh, green bond principles or the climate bond initiatives, climate bond standards uh, are eligible for green bond certification by either third party providers or the CBI, which is the climate bond initiative. Uh, certificate, we'll have some stuff from the climate bond initiative. I know we've got documents from them. Certification gives comfort to investors that the bonds confer environmental or climate related benefits. So these bonds can originate from J.P. Morgan, or they can originate from the IMF. It's a bunch of banks. It's not one. Mm. Wow. See, it's like an entire industry of just made-up garbage. Yep. This is cool. How do we get access to some of this money? That's what I'm interested in. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want to know, Jim. What's going on here? How do we get some of this? Gr this is what the audience yeah, wants to green. know. Can we pool our? Can we pool all of our skill sets and get access to some of this two hundred and forty billion dollars that's floating around? Yeah, <laughs> green bond liquidity. Outstanding amounts to also continue to be small relative to their conventional com comparators with 700 billion worth of green bond volumes compared with 120 trillion worth of conventional securities and hover over that yellow box folks that is 0. 0.00625 so it is less than almost one half of one percent of the total <laughs> market Yes. And they want to shove that down everybody's throat. Yeah, we need to figure this out. No, I mean, this is crazy. It's like, come on here. How many, how many people are out there, do you believe, in the whole world that actually completely understand this? Oh, uh, not many. Seven? <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, there's got to be guys in the you know finance and money world that understand it because they want to make money off it. But I mean, is it? Do you think it's like a few? I, I don't know. It's not many. That's all I know. I don't know. So this is a table here: asset class summary statistics. So what they've got here? Don't hover over that just yet. Okay. So they've got U.S. dollar assets and euro assets, and they've got columns here for government bonds, green bonds, and conventional bonds. So they're comparing the different types of fixed income securities, right? And they've got the average rate of return, the volatility, the expected, the probability of a negative return, and the, and, uh, the, uh, the duration, which is the same for all. But interestingly, of course, what they this shows is that the average rate of return is highest for green bonds, and the volatility is lowest for green bonds, and the probability of a negative return is lowest for green bonds. In other words, it, now you can hover over the uh, the little uh, comment: yep. rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> yep, there it is. <laughs> I love rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> And then uh, they end the document. They end the document with, after all, there's more than one way to go green. 
<laughs> I got to break out. Um, hold on a second. We are going green, ladies and gentlemen. Give me one second here. All right. So this one is the BIS launches second green bond fund for central banks. Central. Mm-hmm. But we got to have this on the show from now on, Jim. Hold on one second. I got to break this out. For the video audience, you guys are really going to appreciate this. But our new mascot for going green with the BIS. Ladies and gentlemen, it is me, Kermit D. Frag here. And we are going green with the Bank for International Settlements. <laughs> hey, Miss Piggy, where are you? Now, that's our, our new mascot now for going green. <laughs> KTF. We're doing it. Kermit the Frog, great. <laughs> so uh so this this press release was in January of 2021. Title is Dustin Red, the, the BIS launches second green bond fund for central banks. 2021. It's the second green bond fund, not the eight hundredth, it's the second. Um so I just highlighted here that together the two BIS green bond funds, the first and the second, will manage $2 billion in green bonds for central banks with the expectation that the funds will continue to grow considerably. Folks, $2 billion for all the green bond, green bond funds in the entire planet is 20% of the one liquefied natural gas facility ExxonMobil is building. <laughs> Oh, that is crazy. Just to put it into context. Okay, so this is uh, BIS Innovation Hub. Um, we've, I've talked a little bit about that, uh, this on mm-hmm. the show with the Enbridge project specifically, but I did not go through the whole document. So um, this one is, uh, was it Project Orum, a prototype a pro- for two-tier? Yeah, product, project Orum, right? The prototype for two-tier CBDC. We may not have time today to go through this document. Let's go through some of the other files you've got pulled up. All right, let's go to this is Project Genesis. Oh God, this yeah, one is eighty-two pages, Jim. Yeah, we won't have time uh, for that one. No. This is one that we pulled up on here. This is Embridge. That's another gigantic one. Yeah. Let's see. We've got uh, BIS Green Swan. Oh, this one's 115 pages. I actually have not seen this one myself. It's a good one, but we'll have to table it for another day. All right, let's see. We've got uh, BlackRock Going Green Reset. This is a 16-page document. You want to look at this one? Sure. All right, this, this is, is August Black of 2019. Rock. Mm-hmm. All right, now, let let me just make this clear. So the stuff that we were just pulling up, which is in Jim's November 30th file of what he sent to me, that was just four documents on various projects out of BIS uh, combining up to about 300, 350 pages. (laughs) This is why it's like you think you're going to fight this. You can't really fight it. I mean, you can do these things we talk about in, you know, your everyday life and educate others to use cash and things like that. But this is why a lot of this stuff I say in in the end, whether it takes them five years, 10 years or 30 years, you know, a lot of this is inevitable because there's freaking millions of people working on this 24 seven, 365. Yeah. This is why it took me a while after episode 88 to, 
to start up again because I read thousands of pages of documents. I don't even know you had time. You must have got the brain chip put in because this stuff's insanity. <laughs> well, you get pretty good at skimming and looking for key phrases and words, and then you stop and read, and you know, you don't like. Well, that, that's what that's what happens. Words. Yeah, and then your brain starts connecting. Especially when you know some of the lingo, your brain starts connecting all the dots and you start actually seeing all the patterns, you know, between everything. Yeah. And there's a lot of technical stuff in there that really is less important for what we need to talk to, to the broader, broader audience and, you know, don't need to know all those types of details. So you can skip over those things. Yeah. And if anyone wants to actually understand it all, <laughs> you'll be able to download all these at uh, pain.tv slash gold. Um, hopefully, today or tomorrow i know mike uh, and the crew are back from the break so i should be able to have them work on this but um yeah i mean if you want to but i don't know jim you probably have hundreds of hours into this already and you didn't actually read every single document in detail correct all right so this is blackrock investment institute you said august 2019 dealing with the next downturn from unconventional Folks, monetary what policy this is this is the going direct reset all right the, the the what jackson hole was in august of 2019 scroll back up dustin when did this document come out august, so there it is august of 2019 blackrock wrote the going direct reset for the federal reserve the federal reserve implemented the going direct reset in march of 2020 Let's take a look at this here. Okay, so BlackRock says there's not enough monetary policy space to deal with the next downturn. The current policy space for global central banks is limited and will not be enough to respond to a significant, let alone a, let alone a dramatic downturn. Now remember, this document comes out in August of 2019. The repo market goes haywire in September of 2019. In October of 2019, we have Event 201, where they simulate a coronavirus pandemic to the T, and then all of a sudden, January of 2020, voila, it all comes to fruition. Wow. Uh, okay, hold Black on. So one, one, one more time. You said this uh, was written in 2019. August so, of 2019. Right. The September bank, 2019. The bank system... The repo market in the banking system in the U.S. was cratering or collapsing in September of 2019. The Fed then, steps uh, in to, to fix that. Okay, October of 2019, we have Event 201, which literally was one of those simulations Maria Albanese yeah. talked about. Oh yeah, where they yeah, literally we were, simula simulated COVID. Literally. Yeah. And then January, so, it all kicks off. Yeah. It all kicks off. So yeah. it was. Again, I can't prove this, but it seems plausible that COVID was cover for the banking system that they needed to fix. Well, and you know, you know what makes sense about this, Jim? Because I think you've, you and I have talked about it at least privately. I've talked about it with Maria, many others. That in my, in my personal opinion, they could have got away with the elites could have got away with a lot more during uh, mm -hmm. COVID land, the high school theater production, especially in the first few months, because they had people that were literally scared. Like 
deathly afraid to come out of, even out of their house. And so I think if they rolled out the mRNA vaccines on like day seven, they probably would have had 90% of people that got them. So we always talk about how it doesn't seem like the technocrats, the elites, whatever, were fully prepared when they rolled out COVID because they could have got away with so much more if they did it faster. Maybe one of the reasons is they kicked this thing off faster than they planned on because of what you're saying here. Maybe they saw this big collapse coming and they said, you know, we got to roll this one out now, even though we're not ready for another year. You know, so they just That's rolled what it I've out. been thinking and talking about privately. It just seems like they weren't, they, they were getting it ready, but they weren't quite ready. And then the, they had a problem with the banking system which always starts in the repo market and again if you want more details on exactly what happened and exactly what the federal reserve did go to john titus's best evidence and watch those videos because it pulls up their own data and proves it yeah and i'm telling this does make a lot of sense now that you just laid out that short little timeline because uh, i mean i'm well aware of event 201 i think I was reviewing that on a podcast I used to produce like the day after COVID kicked out, we were doing a show on event 201, but um, Uh no, that makes a lot of sense because that is the thing that I never understood. I'm like, they roll this out and they literally could have got 90% of the country jabbed up in parking lots in the first week. They could have did anything they wanted in those, though that first month really. And they just Mm -hmm. weren't ready. I'm like, they always seem like they're behind the eight ball. But when you're orchestrating, you know, all of these problem reaction solution scenarios. Uh, and so say this banking uh, failure kicks off in the repo, re- repo market in September, you know, this is what happens. They have a lot of moving parts, you know, so it, it could have been that they didn't want that to collapse until the next year, but it was already starting. And so they said, shit, we got to roll this out, move, move to COVID land. We got to do this. And so now they're obviously... I mean, ever since COVID land kicked off, how many times have they tried something else? Like COVID, strain, BYZFF, monkey pox, chicken pox, chicken monkey pox. Like they've tried to, to kick it off again. Uh, and it, it just hasn't worked to that scale. So my, my guess is they're regrouping. That's probably part of that catastrophic contagion uh, run by Bill Gates and Johns Hopkins, who ran Event 201. They may be gearing mm-hmm. up to do another one of these soon. So who knows? Yeah, if you go to Gavi, I think they want to have one in 2025 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so BlackRock yeah, continues, and an unprecedented response will be likely involved going direct. Going direct means the central bank finding ways to get central bank money, not to commercial banks, but directly in the hands of the public and private sector spenders. What is a right. PPP loan? Yeah, exactly. And that's what we were just talking about earlier, right? The ability for them to cut out what they consider to be the middleman or the commercial banks and just having them be the only ones between the uh, buyer and the seller. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, let's see. There's a little more down here. Yep. So additional measures uh, to stimulate economic growth will have to go beyond the interest rate channel and go direct. When a central bank crediting uh, private or public sector accounts directly with money, that's folks, that's helicopter money. That's what they're talking about. 
You know, literally you have the Fed flying over, you know, cities and dropping cash from a helicopter. <laughs> um, so this can be done directly through fiscal policy or by expanding the monetary, monetary policy toolkit with an instrument that will be fiscal in nature, i.e. PPP, such mm-hmm. as credit easing by the way of buying equities. All right. Wow, this is really interesting stuff. We would highlight two key points on helicopter money. First, the fiscal expansion it represents. Second, this boost to the stock of money has to be permanent. And we wonder why we have inflation 18 to 24 months later. <laughs> Tim, you could do a whole book with this we, stuff. Not we, they, they. They wonder why, right? It's a mystery. It's a mystery that inflation just came out of nowhere, even though they printed trillions of dollars in late 2019, <laughs> early 2020. And then two years later, we have massive inflation, and they can't figure out why. Exactly. And then they send all the bankers on TV to tell everyone there's inflation, which doesn't make things better. It makes it worse. (laughs) So that's all part of the propaganda part of it. Right. So going direct by country in the U.S., there's options to implement. Congress could create a special treasury account at the Fed and authorize Federal Open Market Committee to fill the account up to a preset limit. Highlight over that uh, comment. Is it blank? Is it? Maybe it's blank. Oh, wait, no. I see it somewhere there. It, uh, it, says, it says, give the Fed other words, U.S. sovereignty <laughs> slowly to not alert the angry public. <laughs> give the Fed U.S. sovereignty slowly to not alert the angry public. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, you can keep going, scrolling down. <laughs> okay, I All think right, we're that done with that. All right, let's see. Now, this is the next one here. Oh, here's a. Uh, this is Blue, Blue Carbon, Carbon Coalition. Coalition, and this is only uh, two pages. Yeah, have you ever heard of Blue Carbon? No, only because you told me. Uh, but other than that, no. <laughs> I had never heard of it prior to doing <laughs> finding these documents either. <laughs> so gathering governments, non-governmental actors, and private actors. Notice they never said the public. <laughs> uh, the Blue Carbon Coalition aims to accelerate investments in coastal carbon sinks. <laughs> Another term I had never heard of. <laughs> coastal wetlands, mangroves, salt marshes, and seagrasses have an outsized role to play in mitigating and adapting to climate change. When protected or restored, these ecosystems sequester and store globally significant amounts of carbon in the plants and soils beneath them, known as blue carbon. Okay, is anybody familiar with what happened to uh, the the marshlands in Florida? Was this where they were doing the sugar cane stuff, or uh, was it sugar? Well, they went and they they had they have so much of the petrochemical fertilizer and herbicides and pesticides runoff that it's killing the whole ecosystem. That's the red, is that the Red Sea or the red, whatever it's called? Red, red algae, marsh. I think, the red yeah. algae stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I don't, and I didn't read about any of these documents about, you know, cutting back on the uh, petrochemical fertilizers to save the ecosystems of the mangroves. 
Anyway. No, we need to spray the skies with aluminum and block the sun. That's, that's what we have right. To do. Or, or uh, I can't wait for somebody to write in and tell us what's going on with uh, that other heavy metal arsenic. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. The question that you post. By the way, I got a question for you. So yesterday, we, we, we took Willie to go to his first sunset. There's a good, like, overlook here about 12 minutes away, right? So I'm looking uh-huh. up at the sky. They're spraying the crap out of it. Like, there's chemtrails everywhere. And so I'm watching one plane flying across, emitting a chemtrail. Though there's two other planes flying with nothing coming out of the back of it. So I'm trying to film it, but it's very hard to film the sky even with an a good iPhone uh, just to get yeah. the focus and everything. So I'm, I'm watching it going, well, there's one spraying something, and then there's two that are not spraying something, but they'll tell you that the spray is just, you know, the oxygen, the vapor. water vapor being released into the sky. Well, why is one spraying something? And then there's two flying that aren't spraying anything. There's a documentary I watched on this geoengineering. Um, yeah. It's pretty fascinating, but it was, a, it was a few months ago that I watched it. So I don't have a lot of the details memorized. But, folks, you can Google this and watch it on YouTube. Uh, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, they admit they do it. So, yeah. Yeah. As soon as we finish this page, I want you to pull up something on the arsenic real quick. So the Glasgow COP26 marked an inflection point in the recognition of blue carbon as an essential nature-based solution to climate change. The goal is to develop conservation models that benefits the livelihoods worldwide with a focus on least developed countries, or LDCs, indigenous peoples, and local communities. In other words, the poor southern hemisphere. <laughs> oh my gosh all right pull up a web browser real quick all right hold on, let me see what we've got here it's gonna get in line all right what are we looking for here search global arsenic production Go to images across the top. Click on that first image. Okay, let me see. How do you um? Just click on it. Maybe you can get it, make it bigger. Uh, Google changes this like every day. It's a pain in the neck. All right. All so right. this goes all the way back to 2010. We were at 41,000 tons or whatever it is. Yeah, metric tons. And it slowly declined to 2019, where we were down to 32,000 metric tons. And then wow. in 2020, we're at 80,000. Is it 60,000 or 60,000, oh, 60, yeah. And in 2021, 59,000. What caused that massive jump in arsenic production? Now, you've looked this up and you have not found an answer. I haven't spent a whole lot of time because I was reading 3,000 pages of other documents. Oh, no, I, I didn't know a, if you had actually tried to research it. No, no, very minimally. And I'm, okay. I'm not a scientist. I don't know what arsenic is used for. I just, I know it's poison, and I know it doubled going into COVID, and I don't know why, and it doesn't make any sense just on the surface. I'm going to ask somebody. 
But just out of curiosity, let's just see. Production of Arstic. Click the first people ask question arrow down. Was it? Oh, it's high yeah. levels of arsenic. Never, never mind. Yeah. Global scale arsenic pollution, arsenic dilemma, arsenic risk. No, uh, yeah, there's nothing that pops up on the first page of interest here. I'll, I'll look into it and see. I'll ask uh, a gentleman I was telling you about before as a scientist, see if he knows. Yeah, okay. All right, let's see. We've got here, uh, this is a two-page document here. This yep, is uh, this is the... Uh trying to read it here what's the the one planet summit in the leadership coalition so a group of companies and actors working to implement ambitious pricing for carbon the cplc is a voluntary initiative that brings together leaders from government business civil society and academia although I wasn't part of the civil society, I'm not sure if you were, uh, <laughs> to enhance global understanding of carbon pricing as a tool for accelerating and financing effective climate action. Its purpose Ooh. is to promote carbon pricing as an effective tool to reduce emissions so that 50% of the global emissions are covered by carbon pricing in, by 2030. Okay, so what does that mean? It means they're going to put carbon taxes on top of anything that they they deem as a CO2 polluter and cause massive inflation. <laughs> That's what that means. Wow. Strengthening carbon pricing policies to redirect investment commensurate with the scale of the climate change. In other words, we don't want you to drill for more oil and natural gas, so we're going to put a massive methane tax on there, which, by the way, went into effect January 1st, yesterday, uh, in the U.S. So you said they put a methane tax on what, drilling? Yeah. Now, let me ask you this question. From from your perspective and someone who's in this industry and has been in it since, what, 2010, you said? Yep. Okay, do you see that these international bodies, you know, starting with, let's say, the BIS and then UN climate and all this, and we know that the climate hustle's a racket, right? Are they mm -hmm. actually trying to do, just for the audience, are they putting those type of policy measures into place because they're actually trying to hurt and attack uh, the fossil fuel industries or... Are they knowing that it's never going to go away, that fossil fuels are never going to go away, knowing that they cannot replace it all with wind, solar, and batteries? Um, are they just doing it to end up driving up the consumer prices and hurt you know, regular people out there? What, like, what do you think the real goals are? It's the latter, okay? Again, if you start with the end result, what their goal is, is a CBDC microchip in your hand and a carbon-based economic system with a digital ID, right? Mm -hmm. To get people to accept that microchip, you have to starve them to death via inflation or freeze them to death also via inflation because the price of electricity from natural gas will go up a lot with these taxes 
And then if people are cold and hungry, more people will accept that chip in the hand. It also plays into a role. These guys are all, they're dishing out carbon credits to each other. Al Gore owns a ton of carbon credits. He's admitted it for like a decade now. Well, they want the value of those carbon credits to go a lot higher. Right. So, so, but that's how they would be. So the elites, uh, let's just put Al Gore in the elite class, right? So the elites are running around with all these, let's just like consider them worthless carbon credits in their pocket, right? So they have to drive the price of that, those up, right? To increase their own personal wealth. And then they're mm-hmm. able to go and sell these worthless carbon credits to people, to companies that are deemed to be polluters. So it's a way for the elites to siphon off cash to basically extort these people, to enrich themselves uh, by forcing these people into this made-up system. So they're able to do that, and then at the same time, uh, drive up inflation, which drives up the prices to starve out the middle class and everyone else to make them so miserable living inside, you know, of this like rotting, decaying hellhole. And then that drives them into the full blown CBDC prison planet slave system with UBI, correct? With well, yeah, I mean, UBI and, so, and all that'll be part of it, yeah, right, right. So, think about Exxon why is Exxon in, in investing a ton of money in carbon capture? Uh, systems well just like tesla gets carbon credits when they build an ev car when exxon invests money into a carbon capture system they get carbon credits and it 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 makes them offset the carbon that they supposedly emit is that is bad from their oil and gas operations and they are quote unquote net zero net zero does not mean zero co2 emissions net zero means you buy enough carbon credits to offset the co2 that you emit yeah it's like the new branding over the last couple years on the net zero bread uh like the net zero carb bread it it doesn't have Mm -hmm. zero carbs the the whole marketing behind that is like it you're gonna have zero carbs by the amount of energy you expend like while you're chewing on the bread I'm serious. Like how many like calories you're burning while you're chewing? I mean, it's so ridiculous. I looked it up one day. I was like, what the hell is net zero carb bread? It has carbs in it. Well, that's like how it works. And so it's just a made up system. But here's the thing. So the carbon caption system, which you mentioned before, what is that? Is that like supposedly actual technology that filters out pollution or, or is that a it's system that tracks it? carbon capture sequestration. So they're like, you know, if you got a smokestack at a coal-fired power plant, you put some uh, technological, I don't, know, I don't know the details of it, but you put this system next to the smokestack that supposedly traps and captures the CO2 which then you can sell to other industries that use CO2 uh, in their, you know, like product or or uh, uh, manufacturing, right? Um, you can actually, interestingly, one of the ways to get, it's called enhanced oil recovery. Okay. So when they drill an oil well, you know, that well, every well depletes over time okay. because the pressure goes down, right? When they first poke a hole, the pressure is so high, a lot of oil or natural gas comes out. And then as that pressure deflates, like a, like a the balloon deflates, that you know it might drop 80 90 percent in the first two years but then it levels out and it, it will produce for another 
30, 40, 50 years, right? They have technology, to, and they've been doing this for decades. It's not brand new. To go back into that well and, and increase the pressure, one of the ways they do that is they inject CO2 into the well, the reservoir. Mm. So Exxon can take this CO2 that they capture, go back to their oil wells, inject the CO2 in the ground, get a carbon credit for it, and also boost oil production at the same time. Okay, so they're getting the carbon credit because they captioned it in the carbon capture system. And put it back in the ground. And put it back in the ground. Okay, so, and they could own all the, the range of companies in that whole uh, supply chain, that yeah. manufacturing process. So, all right, no, I just wanted to understand. So now, if the Al Gores of the world are going to let Exxon get away with doing that, right? It, like, normally, if they were really enemies, they'd say, hey, that's cheating. You're not allowed to sell it back to yourself. Um now, I know you're in the business, but the oil and gas guys are also, the big guys, are also involved with the World Banks and the, the WEF and all yeah. this stuff as well. So they're all mm -hmm. part of it. Um, so what what's the reason behind doing all this? It's not to stop pollution of the planet. Is that to drive out, uh, drive little guys out of the market? Because at the end of the day, the little guys aren't going to be able to afford to buy all these carbon credits? Or buy Possibly. a carbon capture system? Mm-hmm. Possibly. I mean, if you had a small guy and it cost $64 million to put a carbon capture system on something and they can't you afford to do you, that. You regulate them out, right. Okay. If you put a big meth... Well, now, if you just put a methane tax, right, and you drill a well and it, 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 you've got methane leaks in the well, a lot of them don't have a lot of leakage, but you know, they'll want to make you believe they all do. But let's assume you, this little guy drills a well and it's got methane leaks. And so there's a tax on that that oil that's produced, right? Mm -hmm. Well, what ends up happening is that little guy will then, as he sells the oil into the market, right, it, then they have a lesser rate of return, like you said, because they've got to pay this tax at the corporate level, not the market level. But if enough little guys that happens to, then the price of the commodity, oil and natural gas, is going to go higher. Right, exactly. Oh, all right. This is so. This is this is a well, well orchestrated scam operation. I mean, to yep. be able to pull this off. I, I mean, and this is just like it's crazy. This is like one thing out of hundreds of these they have going on. I mean, we're looking at all these documents. There's hundreds of these scams. Yeah. Oh, I should have been Al Gore. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, I just highlighted the carbon pricing in the Americas platform was created in 2018. Three countries, Argentina, Chile, and Colombia, have implemented carbon pricing. Canada and Mexico are working on it. Uh, Quebec and Chile co-chairs the carbon pricing of the americas platform invited governments across the americas to endorse the glasgow declaration on climate carbon pricing in the americas okay did we vote on that i didn't no. vote on it i think you did you said you liked it right <laughs> yeah we should probably wrap up here yeah let's wrap up on uh can you go um here, you want to just do this one last document with one page? 
Sure. Just balancing the budget. We'll wrap this up. We're about, uh, if you can go just about another nine minutes, I would say. Let's uh, draw okay. this out. This is a nice little uh, chart here. Did you draw this yourself? <laughs> yeah, I did not, but it, it is a nice chart. Balancing the budget. Oil and gas companies cannot be considered Paris compliant if they are prepared to sanction projects that would take the world past the Paris limits. It's got oil and gas, capital expenditure, oil and gas, future uh, extraction and production growth, and the carbon budget. So based on least cost framework, we identify which fossil fuel projects fit in a low carbon future on financial grounds. So some fit, some don't. That's interesting. One oil well works, one doesn't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, same with the companies. Oil and gas, um, some, some, they have to cancel some projects according to the Paris thing. The carbon bubble remains, carbon company budgets. I can't see the bottom of this. Yeah, I'm actually trying to... Uh, hold on, it's being weird. And I'm having a problem actually... Because it's, uh, let me see. I have to go like this. Go. So for some reason here, Jim, it wants to be a pain. There we go. All right. I think there's a page. There's something at the bottom of this, if I remember. Yeah, it's, it's for some reason, it's, it's actually like cut off uh, in the PDF. Hold on. Can you see it now? I can see some of it. So basically what they're saying is that to get to the Paris Agreement, oil and gas production has to go down by 35% by 2040. You know, it's funny how they say this, but then you go and look at their projections for oil and natural gas production in 2050, and it's actually up, not down. So let me ask you, so with this, um, okay, now we're back, we are back in the uh, Paris Climate Accord right now. Did we yeah, rejoin? we are. Okay. Yep. So uh, Trump had pulled us out temporarily and then Biden put us back in? Correct. And uh, as far, like, so as far as you know, because I, I never got into a lot of that stuff, it always bored me. Uh, I just figured whatever it is, I can't stop it. But essentially, what is it? It's just a collection of uh, regulations and rules that we are binding our companies by in sort of this international cooperative uh, market. Is that essentially what it is? So the Paris Climate Agreement um, was laid out pretty, I, get, I think, a detailed whiteboarded uh, from Dr. Shiva. Essentially, okay. it's the marketing arm from the UN and the IPCC where they require all these countries to put money into, um, and then they go out and take that money and give it to NGOs to bribe the politicians of all the countries in the world um, to say yes. that, okay we, okay, we reviewed that in episode 80. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, so that's the net zero, right? So they, the companies then ha in those countries that were bribed, the country companies inside those countries have to then purchase so many carbon credits to offset the co2 that they're putting into the atmosphere okay so That's just another, another agreement just another racket yep 
All right. So with everything we just reviewed uh, today, Jim, what's the moral of uh, today's show? What's the theme of today's show? Um, I think you really uh, nailed it there with starving people to death and uh, making them cold and hungry. <laughs> I think that pretty much is it. But they want to include you and they love you. Well, they do love you. I always have to put that in there. That's my favorite one. They love you. Bill Gates loves me. The Bank for International Settlements loves me. The guy at the CVS drive through booster shop loves me. Uh, Biden loves me. Trump loves me. Elon Musk loves me. They all love they're me. They're worried about your sovereignty, but they're <laughs> based on the system that they want to implement. They're telling you they're worried about your sovereignty, which really means you should be worried about your sovereignty because they want to take it. Yeah. No, no, okay, that's that's a good one too, sovereignty. No, it is. It's and then, and then they tell you, you know, your sovereignty and your privacy, but we do have to be able to protect you from cyber hacks. So, so you're gonna have yeah, to give us all they're your really worried about cyber crime, but they want you to go digital. They want you to go digital and allow them to connect up all of the databases across the public and private sector so they have a complete and total digital footprint on you of which they're already doing that they just like like maria had sent me ray albanese co-host of the thomas Paine podcast on friday sent me a video the other day of a guy in um i can't remember if it was brazil or venezuela or somewhere and he was using his uh digital wallet to pay with bitcoin at the grocery store and the person who had put it out said oh yes look uh, brazil or whatever is now finally accepting bitcoin and the guy in the video was talking about how it you know screw the west this is fantastic this is completely anonymous and i'm sitting there going dude you're carrying around a smartphone that you pay for for with a credit card and has your name connected to it there's nothing you're doing on that phone that's private is it, they know where you are at this given moment just by tracking you. I don't understand you. the Bitcoin fanatics that say it's all private and it's all secret. Cash is that way. Bitcoin's not. No, and like you said, all these guys, not, not even, it doesn't even have to be nefarious. doesn't even have to be nefarious. What if there's a giant storm that comes through and knocks out power for a month and you can't access the internet, you can't access your phone, you can't charge you it because there's Bitcoin. no electricity? How do you spend it? Exactly. I mean, I will tell you this. Even if there's a giant collapse, there's going to be enough idiots out there that will take your paper cash for a long enough period of time for you to be able to buy some goods and get some food. Absolutely. But if the power power goes down? Go analog. Yeah, go analog means on your monetaries, too. Go go cash. I was in a a Lowe's or Home Depot the other day, and I sent you and Maria pictures of these, uh, these thermostats, right? Because I was like, I was I was waiting. We had to get a quote because uh, we got a uh, a door, a back door that's you know the 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 glass is sh- is shattered. A, a limb fell off a tree and hit it. <laughs> so I got to get a quote, right? So I'm, I'm walking around waiting for this guy to show up, and I look at these uh, these th- thermostats, and it, I took a picture of it. What the the digital the analog thermostats were like twenty or thirty bucks. And the digital programmable ones were like hundred and twenty dollars. <laughs> and I texted you, analog's cheaper. Yeah, well, that's like I show, I said to you the other day on the Everything uh, Frederick Facebook page. 
I think, what was it, the day before Christmas or something like that? When the power went out, there was some kind of uh, yeah. outage, and Costco was only accepting cash, <laughs> which was was fantastic. It was so great. Yep. And apparently nobody in town could buy anything because no one has cash on them here. No, it was nuts, and people were complaining. Oh, I can't. Well, dude, I don't know. Go to the ATM. Go run to your bank and get some cash. I mean... Seriously, it's crazy, but it goes I wonder to show. What that, uh, I wonder what that bougie coffee shop in Atlanta would do if the uh, if the power's out. We're or, closing or, or, or the door. power, but internet out. Yeah, we're closing the doors. We don't accept cash. I you guess know if they, the power's out. How, how do they make coffee? No, you know why they probably stopped accepting cash? Because the owner was owner probably realized what uh, the rest of us did. They don't teach these uh, kids in school anymore how to count. Uh, short of a cash register, so they stopped using cash because the guy was losing so much money <laughs> on the kids getting well, out of change. Yeah, but okay, okay. So the old, the old uh, registers that look like a typewriter, and you're typing all the keys on and stuff. It still tells you what the change is. Yeah, but do you ever go to the grocery store and like you give the kid uh, money and he can't even count out the change that it yeah, tells him? Yeah, yeah. Or you they try to no hand idea. him money after he hits the register and he's like freaked out because you gave him a three extra dollars to balance out the change to twenty, and he sits there like a deer in the headlights. I mean, folks, you want to talk about a giant conspiracy? You don't think they've been teaching your kids Common Core math and making sure they don't know how to count for a reason? All this stuff, when your kid hits 18, 20, 21, and they can't count, this is all part of what will help drive them into CBDC acceptance as well. Because they're just going to say, you walk around with your wallet and you don't have to do anything. You just scan your QR code and it counts you automatically. I've got one better. I was in, uh, it was about seven or eight years ago. I'm in downtown Dallas in this office building. I go to grab some lunch downstairs in like the food court area and they've got a Chick-fil-A. So I go to the Chick-fil-A. The first thing they do is, can I get a name for the order, right? Mm -hmm. That's what they ask you at Chick-fil-A. So Chick-fil-A, I get it. They're not all, all over the country yet. So some people may not know what that is, but it's a pretty big chicken sandwich chain. Okay. So... He says, can I get a name for the order? I said, Jim. He looked at me, and he goes, how do you spell that? (laughs) Oh, my So I paused. I paused briefly, and I'm going, okay, do I give him J-I-M, G-Y-M, or (laughs) G-E-M? So I gave him G-Y-M, and and then he took my order, and I looked at my receipt, and sure enough, it had G-Y-M on it. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. Do you it's think crazy. you would be able to count change out? No. That's why we feel bad, you know, for the kids and grandkids that they're going to have to live inside this system. But don't worry, folks. The government has these kids totally prepped. They are ready and prepared to live inside this system. <laughs> it's it's a sad situation, man. It is sad. But uh that's the way it is out there. All right, any final thoughts? Uh, I know you got to run. You probably got to start working again. What'd you take, like a week off of work? Yeah, I just took a week off. <laughs> I used to do that That's back right. in the day. Yeah. Once you, you get once you get into podcast, <laughs> once you get into podcasting, you could take like a day or two off, and that's it. Uh, then you come back and you realize that you lost. 
72 percent of your audience and it takes you a week to rebuild so i realized there yeah. are no vacation days no, in podcasting <laughs> yeah no thanks yeah no. so um we'll talk privately we'll we'll schedule the next uh the next one we'll keep going through these documents we've got a lot to go through yeah i know but you know it is it is well worth it and i think this stuff is really important because it puts a lot of the meat and potatoes behind um the stuff i've been covering here people can actually start to see when you're watching bo lee and cecilia skingsley and the rest of these central bankers up on the stage this is where all the stuff is coming from where all their uh, talking yeah. points or, are or down Biden from. or Buttigieg or Macron or Trudeau. They're all saying the same things. Yeah, they're all operating off this. And <clears throat> like yep. you said, it all comes from the head of the snake, which is the Bank for International Settlements. And then whoever's behind them, which, you know, that you just have to speculate on. But we'll, we'll talk more about that stuff in the future as well. All yep. right, Jim. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Um, and that's, is that it? Anything else? That's it. We'll talk soon. All right. Well, thank you very much, brother. We appreciate it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you heard from Wide Awake Jim. He has been incredible lending his time to us as he's gone through all of these documents. I think between episodes 80, 88, and then he's what he's done here since episode 120, uh, he's actually probably had close to 250 to 300 documents, charts, and graphs. All that stuff will be up at pain.tv slash gold episode 80 and 88 has everything up. And then, uh, I'll be talking to the young bucks, uh, today, see if they can't get that up tonight. Don't worry. It will all be there. Um, so that's it, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be back with Jim. Maybe another show this week. We'll see what he has time for. I've got a few other guests lined up that'll be on here as well. So I think I'm going to have Timothy Shea on soon. He is the gentleman whose show I just went on called The Reckoning. Timothy Shea has a background in science and biology. He was the first scientist that I ever heard call out covid essentially as a hoax and warning people about the mrna vaccines he went on mike moore's show the thomas Paine podcast in uh april of 2020 and was warning people he also appeared on the douglas dakota show that i used to produce he was out there running around trying to tell people so we're going to talk a little bit about that some of the stuff he said back in april what stuff came true and what he sees coming in the future because i know he's constantly tracking all of these new tabletop exercises that these folks are working on and then on january 4th i have the healing doc from twitter coming on he's going to talk about vaccines in general he's going to be talking about allopathic medicine versus natural medicine we're going to probably get into some terrain theory versus germ theory but i've got to be careful with that because it can get you banned everywhere so we're going to be doing a lot of stuff folks lots of other guests are lined up ladies and gentlemen please leave us a five-star review at apple Podcasts along with a comment comment think about joining us at pain.tv slash gold get access to the ad-free video version of this podcast as well as the thomas Payne podcast you can join the higher tier get access to mike moore's Hotwire, where you get his highest level of intelligence believe it or not over 50 percent of the people that have signed up for pain.tv slash gold through me have signed up for the Hotwire. people people love it he gives out some really good information uh whether you're going to use it to 
hopefully insulate yourself from what's coming or you're going to use it to make better investments or get ahead on supply chain issues. Mike does a great job with that over there. If you'd like to leave a donation for the show, you can do so at donorbox.org slash Dustin Gold Show. Lots of stuff is in the works, folks. I will keep you posted. Until tomorrow, I am going to sleep. Ladies and gentlemen, Happy New Year to all of you. This is the Dustin Gold Show right here on pain.tv slash gold. My name is Dustin Gold. Goodbye. The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold.